Have you ever wondered how you can keep up with what's happening in the religion world and how some folks seem to know things while others are completely in the dark? Or maybe you wonder how you might mention to someone that you're concerned about a leader that they are following. That's what I'll be talking about today with my guest, Becky Castle-Miller, on episode 111 of the Untangled Faith podcast. And if you're a part of our Patreon community for the podcast, there's some special bonus audio I shared just for you. You can find that at patreon.com slash untangledfaith. I can't wait for you to listen to this week's episode. I'm Amy Fritz, and you're listening to the Untangled Faith podcast a podcast for anyone who has found themselves confused or disillusioned in their faith journey. If you want to hold on to your faith while untangling it from all that is not good or true, this is the place for you. Hey, Becky, welcome to the Untangled Faith Podcast. Welcome back to the Untangled Faith Podcast. This is your second time on the podcast. Yes. I'm so excited for this conversation. <laughs> we This is something we've been kind of talking about in circles around like on WhatsApp and just in, in real life when we have talked. And I think it's going to be something that people are going to resonate with. And the, the whole idea of like, how do we keep track of what's happening in the world of, of church things that I should know about or, or not know about? How do I know when it's something to pay attention to? <laughs> should I have known these people were good guys and bad guys? All the things. And so I, I think this is going to be fun. I don't know if fun is the right word, but I think it'll be helpful. So yeah. I would love to start with you sharing a story you recently shared on your social media where you said, I hate it when this sort of thing, when I have to do this sort of thing. What was the thing? What was yes. the conversation that you yes. just hate having to do? So I hate having to be the person who tells someone that a Christian leader they admire is actually an abuser. And I made a reel about that because it had happened to me three times in like a two-week period. I say happened to me as if I, you know, obviously I'm an active <laughs> agent in these conversations. Obviously yeah. I'm choosing to share this information. I could keep my mouth shut and I could let the conversation go on politely, but I feel an obligation to tell people that someone that they're listening to and learning from or even befriending or putting themselves in the orbit of is actually dangerous because I care about people and I want them to be safe and I don't want them to be spiritually abused. And so I, I bring it up. So, so three different times in this period, I had had a conversation with someone where they mentioned either a church they were involved in or a Christian leader that they admired. And I said, hey, I don't think you know this. That person is actually a documented abuser. And two of them were like well-known, famous pastors. And one of them was a lesser-known local pastor. One of them is a sexual predator. The other one covered up sexual abuse at a church. And the other one was doing abuse of power. Yeah. So different types of abuse, but very destructive leaders. In two of the cases, I personally know some of the victims. So it's not just I'm reading about this online. I'm like, no, I've actually been told – to my face, people's stories about how these leaders harmed them. So yeah, I'm going to pass on this information to people. Yeah. When you hear somebody bring up those sorts of names, how do you decide if you should say something or not? Uh, well, I'm an Enneagram 8. So my <laughs> default is just to charge in like a bull in a china shop and just go ahead and say it. Anyway, people <laughs> who are more conflict averse may not want to take that approach. Yeah. Because I don't shy away from conflict and just kind of charge into those difficult and uncomfortable conversations. Um, so 
how do how do I make this decision when to share? I mean, I, I think generally anytime I have a relationship with someone and they're promoting someone I know is dangerous, I'm gonna say something. So maybe the question isn't like, do you say something, but like what's the secret that maybe you have seen in patterns of of having these conversations, of getting someone to actually believe you? Cause you're gonna tell them something most likely that they are gonna be resistant to or probably not real excited to want to believe. Yeah. Well, some of it maybe has to do with your credibility with the person. If sure. you're someone that they trust and respect and you tell them information that's uncomfortable, they probably have a better capacity to absorb it than if they hear it from someone they don't like, don't trust, or don't know. Yeah. So in that case, maybe they're more likely to believe it if I tell them in a personal conversation than if they read it on Twitter, X, yeah. whatever. Maybe they are more likely to believe it. But also... In the past, I've shared about leaders being abusive and people didn't believe me and didn't want to know. And what that told me was that that person I was talking to was not a safe person for me to share my own church abuse stories with. Yeah. Yeah. So maybe that's a point. If When someone tells you about an abusive leader, if you dismiss them and get defensive and push back and don't believe them, there's a possibility that your friend that just shared that with you has their own abuse story that they will now never tell you. Hmm. That's one thing to keep in mind. So I've I've had people respond both ways. They believe me, they don't believe me. But I've noticed it's the people who don't like women or don't believe women or think women are hysterical who are less likely to believe me. Yeah. And they're probably not going to be your closest friends if they think those things. If they think those things are not going to be super close anyway. But if they look down on me already – They will not want to believe when I tell them that this apologist they respect is an abuser. If they look up to me or respect me as a peer, then they're going to listen more likely. Yeah, that makes sense. If somebody doesn't believe you, have you seen any themes and why somebody might not want to believe you? Well, here's an uncomfortable one because they're an abuser themselves. Yeah, yeah. If they don't want to believe my report about a famous Christian being an abuser, is it because they've done some of the same things that leader has done and they don't want me calling them an abuser? If they accept that that person is abusive, what does that mean about themselves or their friends? Yeah. What does that mean about the patriarchy? If they really want to believe in male superiority or male headship, male leadership, um, if you've got women saying that these men are dangerous, but the men are on their team men are yeah. on on the side of promoting patriarchy, then they don't want to hear bad things about those men because that threatens their own position. Yeah. Um, and then there's also people who are just woefully uneducated about abuse dynamics, and they have no categories to make sense of what you're saying, and they don't believe it just because they don't understand anything about how abuse works, and so it just doesn't make sense to them. And so then it takes – much more education before they can even begin to process what you're telling them. Oh, yeah. I've seen that. The implication thing. I just talked to Kristen LaValle and she said she has implication brain. She knows if I take this at face value, that means this and that means this. And so I think you're right when you say people either subconsciously or consciously see or feel those implications and that has an impact on how they receive what you're saying I had a conversation with somebody 
about a year and a half ago where I had been considering, do I say something or not say something? I felt like they were in the orbit of somebody really unhealthy. And I was like, well, we aren't close friends, but we've interacted enough that I think she would know that I'm not making it up. I approached it by saying, hey, I know some things that bring me concerns about this person. Let me know if you are interested in hearing me. And this person responded and said, I really can't hear it right now. And they weren't saying, I don't believe you. They were saying, I have a lot of things happening in my life right now. And I can't engage this conversation. A year later, they came back to me and said, hey, can we talk about that now? Yeah. Yeah. I respect that approach. And actually, that is something I would like to start doing. I think asking for someone's consent to hear that is actually important because it could be paradigm shattering for them or world altering. And I think people do need to consent to that. Maybe that comes in when you know something and it's not like they just came into your, you weren't sitting at coffee with them and they're mentioning that person. It's just that you have some overlap with them and you know some things and it'll be you bringing it up out of the blue. Right. I think that's actually really honoring of them to say, are you in the space to hear something that might be difficult for you right now? And do you consent to hearing this information? I I respect that a lot. And I thought of another reason that sometimes people don't believe. Okay. It's if they were very positively impacted in their spiritual life by that leader, it can be very hard for them to believe that that person is destructive Mm -hmm. or if that person is a personal friend. Yeah. Or that they're afraid it would discredit an entire discipline, movement, denomination, field, et cetera. Well, I can't believe that apologist is bad because apologetics has been really helpful for my faith. Right. I can't believe that that denominational leader is bad because this denomination has been a good place for me. I can't believe that person is destructive because they've never treated me that way. Yeah. So th- I've heard those same things. I, I grew up in the Christian and Missionary Alliance denomination, speaking of denominations, And so when I first saw anything about Ravi Zacharias, speaking of apologetics, I wasn't sure what to think. My own mother went to go to a annual denominational meeting because there were two people speaking and one of them was Ravi Zacharias that she wanted to hear. And so it does something in you. I have heard so many people say about Ravi, this is so hard because they had such a big influence and impact on my life what I decided to do with my life. And that's painful. How do you reorganize and recategorize all that in your brain? Yeah. And for some people, it really is a blow to their faith. Such and such a leader who had such a positive impact on my relationship with God is actually this destructive, harmful person. What does that mean about the faith I received from them? What does it mean about God being good? Is anyone safe? Is anyone not evil? It can really send people into a spiral with their very faith. I mean, I get this. Not everybody sees the things that we see, reads the things that we read. How are you even aware of these things? Not Mm -hmm. everybody is. Right. Since 2006 or 2007, I have been reading about abuse in Christian spaces. I stumbled across this entire 
I don't know, field? What do you call the group of people who care about abuse in the church and like want to make a difference? I don't know. Yeah, like this grouping of people. I stumbled across this when I was reading about teen mania ministries because so many of my friends from college had been harmed in teen mania's internship specifically, but also on mission trips and also, you know, bad teaching at their conferences. And as I read this really important what some people would denigrate and call like a watch blog or like a discernment blog, but this blogger like exposing all of these bad teachings at Team Mania, I was like, oh my gosh, I have been taught these same things in different contexts, especially about emotional and mental health. And I could see how those teachings had negatively impacted me, which on the positive side sent me off into this journey to learn about mental health to learn about emotional health, which then led me eventually to seminary and to a PhD doing emotions in the Bible. So, <laughs> you know, this whole process of, of reading this blog about Team Mania actually set me on my life's purpose of writing about emotional health based on the Bible. But after that, I started following more people who cared about these issues. Dee at Wartburg Watch and Julianne at Spiritual Sounding Board, Warren Throckmorton at his his blog, his old Patheos blog when he was journaling Mars Hill stuff. Yeah. So for a long time, decades, I've been following these stories and starting to, to connect with leaders in this space who are speaking out about abuse in church and ministries. Um, and so I've formed this network over time. So a lot of the people I follow on social media who've become real life friends, I'm constantly seeing it because of my network. So there is not a church scandal that can happen that does not come across. I don't even go looking for it anymore. It passively comes across my social media feeds because I'm in this network. And so I watched in real time Ravi Zacharias. I watched in real time Mark Driscoll. I saw these things happening. Now I'm watching in real time the whole stuff with the ACNA, my denomination, and Mike Bickle. I'm following these stories as they happen because of the network that I've chosen to connect to, they're the kind of Christians that I want to be around because they care about this stuff. You telling your journey, it sounds so familiar to me. Maybe you were a couple years ahead of me in paying attention, but early on for me, it was, it was the reporting on Bill Gothard and finding yep. their Facebook All of that group too. Yep. and their, their blog. I don't even remember what it's called now. Recovering. Recovering Grace. Recovering Grace. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I found that. And I read it and it made sense to me. It sounded like these people aren't making this up. I wasn't deep in Gothard world, but I had enough overlap with friends that were, that it, it sounded credible to me. And then I found those same conversations happening around teen mania. And I remember thinking, oh my goodness, why did we think that was normal? I wasn't in teen mania, but the idea that People wanted to be martyrs so badly for Jesus that they would be willing to overlook leaders requiring really abusive things of people. And I think one thing that's hard for people is to think, but somebody voluntarily signed up for that. How can that be abusive, right? And that brings a whole conversation. Yeah. What about is the phrase? Is it bounded consent? There's a sociological term for this where yeah. you're not really able to consent to something because your entire subculture is pushing you to do it or holds it up as a good thing. Like that's not yeah. free will. That's not real choice. Yeah. And I'd followed Dee and Julianne. And so I think that is how I first heard about Ravi Zacharias. And I remember people pushing back and saying, but isn't the main voice against Ravi an atheist? 
but I knew this yeah. atheist yeah. yeah, was talking to people that claimed to follow Jesus. And Steve was showing Ravi's falsified credentials before the stuff with the sexual abuse even came to light. Like I knew that Ravi was a fraud before any of the sexual abuse stories broke because Steve had shown he's been falsifying credentials for years. Right. Yeah. I shared one of his posts on Facebook, probably 2012 or 2013. And I remember a friend being like, no, like, why would I believe this banjo guy? Because he had the name, you know, the banjo atheist on YouTube or the name of his, his blog. One of the first times I shared some of this stuff was the Sovereign Grace sexual abuse mess, which is this huge, deep reaching issue. And I shared some stories about that in probably, I don't know, 2013, 2014. I can't remember the exact. I was like having my third and fourth babies at that time. So like it's a bit of a blur, but even before Rachel Denhollander got involved and I just got so much backlash from my social media community, especially on Facebook, even family members attacking me for sharing this stuff and believing it. It all turned out to be true. Like as Rachel Denhollander documented with lawyerly precision, it was all true. That came out a few years later, but people did not want to believe it when I first started sharing it. So talk to me about that. People will probably push back and say, anyone can say anything. Why would you believe these accounts? So I've done the sociological reading (laughs) uh, and the research to understand how trauma works. Yeah and how cults work and how coercive control works in religious environments. So I have enough academic knowledge that I can very quickly read the bare bones of a situation and be like, okay, yeah, I see what's happening here. And this is accurate. This follows the pattern that's been documented by academics in these fields that say, this is how grooming works. This is how clergy sexual abuse works. This is how institutional cover-ups work. Check, check, check. They check all the boxes. I believe this. It's it, But that's because I have this deep well of knowledge that I've invested in over 15 plus years. If you don't have that, I think it is harder to evaluate. But what you can know is that false allegations almost never happen. And false police reports are even less likely to happen. So if someone brings an allegation against a leader, it is almost always true. Like 95 to 99% of the time, you can just be like, let's assume it's true. So it is better to assume that it's true and in very few cases be proven wrong than to assume that it's wrong and in almost every case have it proven that it was that it was correct. And always the best step is to call for an independent third-party investigation. Because if a person is innocent, an independent investigation will prove it and clear them. Yeah, yeah. If they are guilty, we'll be able to find the other victims because there's always more than one. Yeah. Uh, and we'll be able to help more people. So no one should be afraid to call for an independent third-party investigation yeah. by a victim centered, trauma-informed provider. I had a conversation with Pete Singer about how you really, you can't offer the gift of exoneration to somebody if you don't actually take the time to look into it and say, we're going to, we're going to ask some questions. Somebody who says they've been falsely accused, they should welcome somebody to look into it deeper because 
if you didn't do the thing you're being accused of, an investigation will only help you. And especially if it's done by a place that has a reputation for handling things well and showing their work and talking about how how they came to their conclusions. Obviously, Pete works for Grace, but he talks about how they have a whole very extensive report that they put out, but then they talk with all the parties involved and say, I'd like for you to work together on how this is shared. I talked to somebody also on my podcast that had a false allegation, but he had to wait and let that play out. Yeah. If if you are innocent and you think that you've been falsely accused, the best thing you can hope for is a truly impartial investigation because then you will be cleared um, and you will prove to vulnerable people that you're a safe leader because yeah. you are willing to, to undergo that. I think for the average churchgoer to hear allegations of abuse, whether it's sexual abuse, whether it's abuse of power, whether it's verbal and emotional abuse, leaders lashing out at people, screaming at employees, et cetera, call for it to be investigated. And if you believe the victims and then verify, you will be correct most of the time. The false report rate for sexual abuse in particular is so small that it's almost non-existent because when someone is willing to go to the police to make a sexual assault claim. Um, They've already overcome major hurdles to do that. It's a horrific process for victims. They often get re-traumatized by it. They're taking a huge risk by doing it. They're not going to put themselves out there to cause trouble. Right. Yeah. They are putting themselves out there because they want to protect other people and they want some measure of justice. And even some of the few cases that are labeled as false reports are sometimes true reports that the victim was forced to recant mm-hmm. by their abuser. So that then gets logged as a false report, but actually it was true. It was just yet another instance of abuse where the abuser made them go to the police and take it back. So it just so rarely happens that an allegation is not true. Becky and I shifted to talking about reporting that comes out from major and minor news outlets and what you should know about their decision to run certain stories. Um, Whether a newspaper is reporting it, some news service like Religion News Service, or somebody who's an independent journalist does, they don't report on these things lightly. I think people need to understand that. Anybody can write their own like, blog, right? And you should also consider that. You shouldn't disregard it just because it's some person on their Mm -hmm. own website sharing it. There's a process that journalists go through when they decide how to report and what to report because they know that their integrity is on the line too. And they would not sacrifice that if they had not done the due diligence of asking these questions and oftentimes asking for some really difficult questions of people that come to them to share these things. So what do you look for in reporting that helps you Mm -hmm. see that this, this person has done their work? Um, Well, if it's hit, if it's hit a national newspaper or news site, you know that the journalist has vetted it. It would not get published if it hadn't been vetted. And if the reporter didn't have documentation because newspapers are afraid of libel and slander, they don't want to be hit with those kind of charges. They don't want to deal with lawsuits. They're not going to print something that they don't know is true. Now they'll be cautious in their reporting and they'll say, you know, the alleged perpetrator, which is, you know, journalistic integrity, but they have 
talk to sources. So if it's in a national newspaper, they are not making it up. No journalist is going to put their integrity on the line. Right. So that right there should give you confidence in the story. But other things to look for are, are there multiple victims over time whose stories are remarkably similar? Mm-hmm. You see that with the Bill Hybels story. And when that story broke in a big newspaper, the Chicago which Chicago Tribune, whichever Chicago paper broke yeah. the story, they already had, I think, three victims' testimony before they ran that story. And the stories were similar. Like You're going to see the same mode of operation from the perpetrator over and over. And when those initial victims come forward, they give – other victims, the boldness to also come and share. We saw that with the Mike Bickle story. The allegations came in October and there were starting to be remarkable similarities in the stories, like this idea that he had told multiple women, there's a prophecy that my wife is going to die and then I'm going to be with you. Mm -hmm. You don't get multiple victims from multiple times and areas Having the same story, it's not made up. (laughs) That's impossible to fabricate. So you're going to notice those things. And then by January, when some leaders had resigned and some leaders were pushing for this to be investigated and there was a not very good investigation started, then the Kansas City Star ran a story January or February from another victim who actually wanted to put her name on the story and not be a Jane Doe. And then after that, there was another one. So more and more victims will come forward as these things are publicized. I do want to say a word about Jane Doe's, though. Just because someone is going by, what do you call it? An anonymous name. A pseudonym. pseudonym, That doesn't mean they're not credible. It just means they are vulnerable, they're unsafe, they're traumatized, and they're trying to protect as much normalcy in their life as they can. That does not mean that it should be disregarded. But I did notice that people believed the Bickle stuff when Tammy Woods was willing to put her name on the story. But I find that unfair because the the Jane Doe's were telling the truth. Yeah. In Um, my experience with journalists, and it's tricky. And I think there's some different. There's a different process when it's a sexual abuse allegation, because good journalist that's done their work for a while and understands trauma knows how to handle these things and knows what to ask and how to protect people that need to be protected. And so oftentimes behind the scenes, if it's not abuse, the journalist will say, thank you for telling me your story. I can't run it unless this happens. I need actual documentation that I could share (laughs) in my reporting, audio recordings, emails, pictures, those sorts of things that people have, or, and, (laughs) and, or, and usually it's both, somebody willing to go on the record with their name. Um, If you're going to assert that there's an unhealthy workplace happening somewhere, the odds of somebody running a story on that anonymously is going to be really, really low. They might run it if they have all the documentation of it. They wouldn't necessarily need a name then. And the other thing they won't do is they won't like, they won't be like, oh, Becky came to me and said, Susie said, They'll listen to you, but they can't do, you know, secondhand, thirdhand. That's not exactly how it works. And so it takes a while for people to feel comfortable and safe and somebody to say, 
I guess I'll go first. And it is hard. I mean, that's a hard thing to make that decision because in many cases, it's not that a journalist doesn't believe you. It's that they need somebody to say, I'm willing to put my name by it. Right. Which was the case with Rachel Den Hollander and Larry Nassar. There were so many women in different jurisdictions who had the same experience with him, who reported it to a coach here, who reported it to the police here, but those were not coordinated for so long. And so he was able to keep getting away with it. But when it started to become public and they were able to pull these disparate stories together, this robust picture emerged of like, oh yes, this predator has been using the exact same way of abusing and this is how he's avoided detection. Um, And so it takes someone to go public with the story so that it can be corroborated and investigated. I would say if people are reading these articles, know that there are things that aren't in those articles. (laughs) There are things that maybe even are true that, that journalists decided not to put in there because they did not have enough corroboration for it. They may be holding on to that and waiting and it'll come out in some further reporting. They want to make sure that their own name is respected, but they also don't want to misrepresent the people that are coming to them as well. And so trying not to have an agenda, but to share like, this is, this is what's happening. This is, this is what's been reported. And I think if people go back and read some of those articles with that lens on, they'll say, oh, the only thing in here is here's what I have seen, here's the documentation, and here is what firsthand people have said. Mm-hmm. Because how can people argue against that? They don't want to get sued. Somebody could come after them if they are careless with their reporting, especially if it's high profile. Yeah. Yeah. So I think I believe it when it's on the blogs, yeah. but I can understand why some people don't believe it until it's in a, a credible news outlet. Yeah. But I, I would just encourage people start believing it the minute it comes out on the blogs. Yeah. And by believing, does that mean that somebody needs to like take to social media and blast somebody and say, I just read the thing. Everybody should stay away from them. Is there another way to respond? I think it depends on what your position is sure. or what your goals are. Um, someone was asking me, the other day, like, okay, I know you know all these things, and I'm trying to figure out some safe Christian leaders to follow. Can you give me a list of safe people that you trust and have vetted? And also, who should I be aware of is not safe. It's great opening. But they particularly asked me, um, I'm looking also for good Christian music from people who are safe. And I'm like, <laughs> hey, regret to inform you that Chris Rice is a pedophile. And they didn't know that. Yeah. It was hard. Like, I loved his music. That was really terrible to learn and very sad uh, for his victims. Yeah. It, it's it's tragic. But she specifically asked me for that. I'm not on social media like talking about Chris Rice, like that story is done over, it's documented, it's out there. I don't have a, a reason to keep talking about that. But if someone asks me, I'm like, okay, this is a Christian musician that you might want to be aware of. Um, so I think there's like when people ask you for particular advice – that is a good place to tell it if you know. But if you, you're you just learning these things, probably processing with safe people in local community is a better first choice than yeah. blasting it on social media. But if you're in a position of responsibility for a group that then has an active investigation, I think it is your responsibility to speak out. I am in uh, Anglican Church in North America, church in Wheaton, Illinois, this area and this denomination 
there's multiple sexual abuse cases of cover-up, multiple abuse of power cases in churches related to this, this denomination's area. I have felt a responsibility as someone who preaches sometimes like to say openly, here's what's going on. I regularly share news articles about it. I'm in contact with victim advocates and victims. I um, am supporting people in their storytelling. I've written articles that can help people. Like I'm very engaged because this is my world and I do feel a responsibility to speak out about it. I have shared a few articles about Mike Bickle because I grew up in the Kansas City area. I've been to the church back when it was a vineyard church. Like I'm connected enough there that I feel some responsibility to share some of these things, but also like I'm not super engaged and so I'm not regularly sharing these things. So that's kind of my own rubric of if someone asks me specific questions or if I'm engaged in a situation or it impacts my local world, I will talk about it. But it's not healthy for me to be constantly railing about things on social media. (laughs) Yeah. And I I think that's a personal thing. People have to figure out like, what, what am I called to do? What can I handle? How can I move the needle? And who am I becoming in all of this? And that's, that's a hard thing for everybody to, to struggle with. There is no prescriptive one way to do things. I think one question we have to often ask ourselves is, is my presence here or my silence sending a message of endorsement that I wouldn't want to send? And so I think it makes a lot of sense that, you know, people know that you are part of the ACNA. It makes sense that you would be like, I want people to know that I've seen this and I believe these allegations that there are some things that are deeply broken and, and this isn't me saying I endorse this. It's important because of your proximity to say something. Not everybody has that same proximity. We talked a bit about how Tate's Creek Presbyterian church handled reports of abuse by recording artist, Chris Rice at an event at their campus. We've so appreciated their proactive and transparent approach to how they handled this. Yes. And I just want to hold up Tate's Creek as an example. Like they are actually one of the good guys. They're one of the few cases I've seen where the church handled it right. Yeah. They got out ahead of it. They made it public. They made a call for other victims to come forward in a safe way. They believed the victims. They investigated. And they weren't even totally responsible. They were like, we had this singer come in and kids got harmed and we feel responsible and we are doing the right thing. Like it is a masterclass in how to do this Right. I'm so, so impressed with how they Laura Berenger says the same thing. You know, Scott is often like, I have learned to not name people as heroes because we just don't yeah. know what's going to happen. I'm not going to put someone's name in my book anymore. This is something I talked with Laura Berenger and Scott McKnight about on a previous episode that I will link in the show notes. In that conversation, Scott talked about what it was like for him to reckon with the fact that some folks he mentioned as heroes in their book, A Church Called Tove, ended up being harmful people. I... That just, that hits me really hard because I know what Scott means. Yeah, yeah. Because it was his pastor and his seminary president that he had looked up to and put in his books as good examples. And they both crashed and burned and abused people and hurt people within the space of a year. 
Yeah. And so like just, yeah, being really close to them through that whole thing and having worked at Northern myself when that was like, that just hits, that's, that one hits deep for me. I think that's a really good example for all of us too, especially if someone says, come tell me who I can trust is we can say the best I know up to this point, this is what I have seen. These people have acted in a pattern of integrity over a period of time, but that does not mean that they, I would never believe anything bad that people might say. Like, I can't say right. that everybody, that they will always be like that. Like, this is what yeah. I know for now. And that actually helps me reflect on a time when someone came to me and was like, hey, do you know about this person? And I didn't. When a good friend of mine, a student at Northern said, hey, can I call you? Was like, I've been hearing allegations about Bill Shield, president of Northern. Uh, bullying employees. Have you heard anything like that? And I was like, that is a complete shock to me. I have worked there. <laughs> it was never my experience with him at all. That is completely opposite of my perception of him. And I had to have that moment myself of like, someone is bringing this information to me that does not compute. And I uh, had to collect myself and say, I believe you. I believe what you're hearing people tell you. That's just really, I'm processing this, but yes. thank you for telling me. And I am going to engage in helping this get sorted out. Thank you for letting me know. But so I have been on the receiving end of that as well. And it did turn out to be true and well-documented. Yeah. I think that's a, that's a great posture to have, but really hard to have. We have learned that not everybody has the same experience with people and somebody that's unhealthy can be a really wonderful to some people and not show any red flags in, in certain circumstances with certain groups of people that are wildly different than, than somebody else. And so, I mean, I've had the similar thing where somebody said, Hey, this person you, you mentioned, they hurt me. And all I could say was, I'm really sorry. I'm sorry that happened. And then I have to, I have to file that in my brain. Yeah. And there are some cases where I do comment when people share stuff more widely. John Christ is a good example of that. And we've talked about that one a lot. Um, where if people share his comedy stuff, I will almost always comment or message them like, hey, did you know that he has really harmed a number of women and is unrepentant and is now making comedy off of his victim's pain. So maybe not share this person's comedy anymore. That is one where I will almost always bring it up. Just in very recently, he had a, a show at the Ryman, I think, and a very well-known pastor posted a picture there, being there. Yeah, like how do you not know? I mean, like you said earlier. I think I he knew. I think he knew there's no way he didn't know. He lives yeah. in Nashville. He, you know, when you're like, this isn't somebody that's ignorant. Right. I know because you and I are in the same networks. We know these stories. They come up for us. Your average Christian is not paying attention to anti-abuse advocates and is not going to hear these things. Some things are so public that it's shocking to me that people don't know. A friend was just telling me that a pastor made a glowing reference to the Duggar family in a sermon on parenting. And she and I were both like, how, how, if you grocery shop and you see tabloid covers in the grocery checkout aisle, you know that Josh Duggar is in jail. Yeah. 
for having child sexual abuse material. Like you know that. It, how how do you exist in America and not know that one? So some of these I'm like, you should at least know the most public. I, I don't understand the, like the blinders approach. But even more than that, I don't understand the approach of people who don't proactively check to see if their leaders are safe. Yeah. I know that not everyone's going to be getting this information. It's not their special interest like it is for me. Yes. But I don't understand people who don't Google their pastors or the Christian leaders that they're reading and following. It is the information is out there in a lot of cases, unless it's a smaller story that hasn't gotten big attention. But it is so easy to Google a person's name and search terms like abuse, scandal, cover up, bullying, sexting, like I just cheating. Oftentimes if you put the name of a ministry or a pastor in Google and just type have it search news. Yeah. Things will come up. Right. So I just I would encourage people, even if this doesn't become your special interest or hobby, Google your Christian leaders and see what's being said about them. Yeah. When we first moved to Tennessee, we were looking for a church like one does. And I looked online and I quickly eliminated a church because the pastor was a jerk online. If they're going to be sarcastic and snarky and no thanks. Yeah. That's actually, that's a really good tip as well. See how the person comports themselves. Like how do they communicate with people? Oftentimes if somebody is on social media, especially in a forum like Twitter or X or, or threads now, or if they have some sort of public page where they are posting things and people respond to them, you'll have an opportunity to see if somebody pushes back on something and how they respond to somebody questioning them. Mm-hmm. It tells you so much about their character if they have humility or not. And it's just out there for the world to see. And I think sometimes I wonder like, do you not know? (laughs) You realize like you're doing this in public and maybe I should be glad, right? I'm glad it's out there for everyone to see, but not everybody is seeing. You can, you can go look though. You can also, if you're trying to find out if a church or leader is safe, you can look, read negative reviews of the church on Google, like the the Google page for the church, or look on LinkedIn or look on Glassdoor. Glassdoor, look on Glassdoor. How do their former employees feel about their experience of working there? Glassdoor is Mm -hmm. a great place to look. What are people who have left saying about the church? You Google that as well. Like, you know, search term, I left such and such church. Yeah. And see if, if anyone's writing about that, or if you know people who've left, ask them for the real story yeah. about why they left. The, the feedback and the reviews I am most likely to pay attention to are the ones that are really honest about the good and the bad. Anything that is 100%, this is the best thing that ever happened to me, or 100%, there is there was nothing, one like everything is terrible. People aren't going to listen to those as much. And I would say probably you shouldn't, but I pay a lot of attention to the ones that say, I would not recommend this place, but this is why I came. Like, these are some, these were some things I liked about it. This is some good things that were happening. Here are the bad things that are also happening. You make up your mind. The reality is that most places have good and bad. And I find it much more credible when I see 
that mix in there because it doesn't feel as much like somebody has an ax to grind or somebody was told by their boss, we're getting a a lot of bad reviews. (laughs) Go put some, go put some positive ones out there. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, those are all really good tips. And, you know, you can do all of those things, know everything about spiritual abuse, vet everything, and it can still happen to you. Yeah. It happened to me because I was at a church that I thought was so safe, working with a pastor that I deeply trusted, and I was spiritually abused, and it, it blindsided me completely. Because I'm like, I know this stuff. This shouldn't have been able to happen to me. Yeah. But you don't know until it breaks. Yeah. And and you you just don't know when something's going to turn and become controlling and unhealthy. Yeah. So you can know everything and it can still happen to yeah. you. And you haven't shared your story really in depth anywhere that I've seen, but I can see how it's changed you. You already were interested in listening to people, but it can't help but change the way you process when people come to you and say, I haven't told anybody this, or I don't have all the the documentation to go to the people. I have so much trauma and you can respond in a really compassionate way. And I really appreciate that. I want to ask you a question. Sometimes we get pushback in this, in this area where people consider paying attention to this failure porn or that it's some sort of narcissism hunt that we're just waiting for people Uh to do something bad. How would you respond to that? I think that we don't know how prevalent this stuff is. It's not like I go looking for it. It's just there. Well, sometimes I go looking for it. Like if I'm vetting an organization, I go looking for it, right? But like in general, I'm not looking for pastors to fail. I love the church. I love Jesus. I believe in the church. I believe in discipleship. I want to be a Christian. I want to be in a safe church community. I deeply believe in it. I just want it to be safe. And because it so often has not been safe for people, that's – that's why I care. So so I know that people get the pushback of like, you just want the church to fail. No. And I'm not looking for the church to fail or to screw up. I'm not like just waiting for it. I don't want to pounce on it. I'm grieved every time I find another story. I don't rejoice when I hear that another leader has harmed someone. I'm like deeply sad and shocked. Even still, I'm shocked with the Mike Bickle news. My parents were friends with him. They like I, I'm shocked. And I'm sad and I didn't didn't want to happen. So it's not like I'm going to look for it or or rooting for people to fail. But it's it's like, so my husband recently bought a Jeep for our teenage daughter to drive. And I never noticed Jeeps before. I just didn't pay attention to them. But now that we have a Jeep, my little girls and I were driving around and they play a game where they point out every Jeep that they see. And we like carry ducks around so we can duck other Jeep. Do you know about ducking Jeeps? I just heard about that, yes. Yeah, so you like if it's a cool Jeep, like you leave a little rubber duck. It's a whole thing. Anyway, I didn't know about Jeeps and ducks until I knew about Jeeps. And now I see them everywhere. And there's a wave you do when you pass another Jeep owner, right? It feels like that. Like I didn't know how many Jeeps were on the road until I started paying attention to them. I didn't know how much abuse was happening in the Christian world until I started paying attention to it. And it's just everywhere. And I see it all the time, not because there's more Jeeps or more abuse, I'm just like attentive to it. Yeah. 
So it's just not a fair accusation against anti-abuse advocates that we're going and looking for this or celebrating it. We are grieved and we want it to stop. That's why we're talking about it. Yeah. I like that. Well, that is a good way to end our conversation. Thank you for joining me. Thank you, Becky. I love this conversation with Becky. It can be hard to navigate all of this. And she did a great job of showing how she keeps aware and how others can as well. I would love for you to follow her and connect with her. You can find Becky at beckycastlemiller.com. And I'll have a link to that in the show notes, as well as links to all the other places that you can find her. I also wanted to let you know that this episode's show notes is full of links to journalists and reporting that Becky and I mentioned. It's a lot but I wanted you to be able to access all of this information for yourself. Finally, if you are on Patreon, don't forget to check out the bonus audio from this conversation with Becky. We keep talking about what we would look for when it comes to vetting a new church. You can find that at patreon.com slash untangled faith. If you're on social media, I would love to keep this conversation going over on threads, or you can chat with us over on Instagram or through the Facebook page. I'm Untangled Faith on Instagram and Facebook, and I'm Amy Henning Fritz on Threads. The Untangled Faith podcast is hosted by me, Amy Fritz. This podcast is made possible by the support of my Patreon community. A special thanks to producers Michelle Pionic, Phil and Susan Perdue, Pam Forsythe, and Shelley Taylor. Thanks so much for listening. I'll see you next week. <laughs>